This is a continuation of Notes on the Process of Bureaucratic Capitalism in the Third World Countries by Peru People's Movement. Yankee imperialism, which emerges from the Second World War as a hegemonic imperialist power, pushes forward the landowner's path in agriculture in the backward countries to enable greater penetration of their capital in the countryside by means specific to the conditions in each country. This evolutionary path means new modalities of concentration of the old landlord's properties and, therefore, the perpetuation of serfdom under new forms. To this end, the 1950s Yankee imperialism launched its so-called Green Revolution. Yankee imperialists deployed their technicians to various countries to propagate the benefits of this plan and they promoted the creation of agricultural offices and their agricultural clubs for young peasants. They then promoted successive agrarian laws through governments, which were pompously labeled agrarian reform, but were in fact only agrarian measures to promote the landlord path in the countryside. Therefore the land problem, expressed in the existence of the latifundos and of servitude under new forms, persisted resulting in the strengthening and renewal of the exploitation and destitution of the immense mass of peasants in the world. 1. The Three Lines of Development of Bureaucratic Capitalism in Latin America, The Three Necessities, and The Three Reactionary Tasks In 1972, the Red Fraction of the PCP, led by Chairman Gonzalo, through the Popular Information Center, which published People's Voice, disseminated the Analysis of the 1971-75 National Plan of Development of the Contemporary Fascist Military Government. This analysis established a clear position against the imperialist plan known as the Program of the Alliance for Progress, formulated by the Carta de Punta del Este. The analysis states, the Carta de Punta del Este signified an important turn in this process for Peru and for Latin America, which, in view of the repercussions of the Cuban Revolution, proposed the restructuring of Latin American society as a preventative measure against the anticipated revolutionary outbursts. It is important to recall the proposals of this alliance to understand the process that this country is undergoing. The Carta de Punta del Este proposed that the American republics collaborate toward faster economic progress and wider social justice for their peoples, respecting the dignity of man and political freedom. In its preamble and in its stipulated developmental objectives outlined that the resources dedicated to investment would represent a greater portion of the national product. It also proposed the acceleration of the process of rational industrialization to increase the overall productivity of the economy, fully utilizing the capacity and services of both the private and public sectors. Within this industrialization process, special attention would be paid to the establishment and development of industries producing capital goods. On the agrarian question, they proposed promoting, within the particularities of each country, 
programs of integral agrarian reform oriented to the effective transformation of the structures and unjust systems of tenure and exploitation of the land where it is required, with a view toward replacing the latifundio and minifundio regime for a fair property system, and establishing peasant cooperatives and associations and community development programs. Regarding education, it proposed to eliminate illiteracy, modernize and expand the means for secondary, technical, and higher education, increase the capacity for pure and applied research, and foster the trained personnel required by rapidly developing societies. Finally, on economic integration, it proposed to expand the current Latin American national markets as an indispensable condition to accelerate the process of economic development on the continent and as an adequate way of obtaining greater productivity through industrial specialization and complementation. This expansion of the markets will allow a better use of resources proposed in the Alliance for Progress. As is clear from above quotations from People's Voice regarding Carta de Punta del Este, this counter-revolutionary and hegemonist plan tried to ward off the revolution, seeking to eliminate its peasant base through so-called agrarian reform programs, which are more accurately referred to as agrarian reform laws. Their economic objectives were to further boost the penetration of its capitals in the Latin American countryside. This necessitates accelerating the process of a rational industrialization, especially regarding the establishment and development of capital goods producing industries, to try to foster a dependent industrialization in the oppressed countries like those in Latin America, which, consequently, would be subject to imperial interests, bureaucratic capitalism. The section regarding economic integration clearly establishes the necessity for imperialism to develop industrial complementation and specialization, and economies of scale for the greater export of capital and commodities through the establishment of its subsidiary or related companies, parent multinational or transnational enterprises in the imperialist countries, and subsidiary companies, daughters, granddaughters, etc., in the oppressed countries. This all would later become known as global value chains, global production networks, or international fragmentation of production. This is the greatest form of dominance of the imperialist monopolies over the oppressed countries, which has been facilitated more with the free trade agreements and common markets, and which is expressed in the increase of intra-regional trade, such as among the Mercado Común del Sur, Mercosur, countries. Therefore, it is not an expression of the economic development of these countries, but an expression of that capitalism which is subject to imperialism, which corresponds to imperial capital's necessity to struggle for external markets. This necessity is driven by the crisis of the imperialist system itself, and of Yankee imperialism in particular, a crisis that has been deepening since the late 1960s, whose contradictions are all sharpening. Therefore, the dividends which finance capital reaps from its companies in its colonies, semi-colonies, and overseas countries are growing increasingly larger, as Lenin had already observed at the beginning of last century with respect to Japan. As a consequence of the sharpening of imperialism's contradictions, towards the end of the 1960s and the following years, Yankee imperialism started to run into trouble and, on the other hand, in the Latin American countries, the industrial and financial plan failed and entered thereafter into reassessment. 
People's Voice in the article cited previously. The quotes from the Carta de Punta del Este stipulate the three lines of development of bureaucratic capitalism in agriculture, industry, commerce, and finance, and in education. Then in the latter part of the 1960s and the start of the 1970s, Yankee imperialism specified the three reactionary tasks for the reactionary governments of the continent, which corresponded to the three needs of imperialism deepen the development of bureaucratic capitalism, restructure the bureaucrat landlord state, and prevent revolution. Later, in the 1980s, bureaucratic capitalism in Peru entered its general crisis, beginning to be swept away by the People's War, and Yankee imperialism specified that they should reinvigorate bureaucratic capitalism, restructure the bureaucrat landlord state, and annihilate the People's War. As the party has established, the completion of these tasks is a political and historical impossibility. In order to have a historical vision of what is happening and to understand what is going on in the world, especially in the oppressed countries, we have to understand the economic relations in the epoch of imperialism on the basis of the division of the world between imperialist and oppressed countries, political economy, and the economic measures, economic policy. Look at how, in the face of the biggest crisis of imperialism from the early 1970s onward, imperialists started to change their predominantly Keynesian economic policy for that of a stale monetarism and neoliberalism and began to privatize aggressively. As Chairman Gonzalo teaches us, it is necessary to take into account the readjustments and the reconsiderations of imperialism's plans, which arise in the new international conditions and, above all, accord with the concrete conditions of the economic process of bureaucratic capitalism in each country and their experiences in class struggle and political outlooks. He also tells us that we must always see who is served by such and such proposal, plan, or measure. In the case of the Alliance for Progress, the plan primarily served and was within Yankee imperialism's plans of world domination and secondarily served the native exploiting classes. 2. In Asia, the plan of Yankee imperialism, the dispute for the oppressed countries, and the fomentation of restoration in China. Pursuing its world plan in Asia, Yankee imperialism pushed forward with its hegemonist and counter-revolutionary world plan, increasing the exportation of its capital from the mid-1960s onwards. Other imperialists, such as Japan, tried to do the same, exemplifying the inter-imperialist dispute over the semi-colonial countries in Asia and solidifying their positions as far back as that time. Yankee imperialism was also actively watching ongoing events in China, where it sought to gain influence through revisionism, while the great proletarian cultural revolution was developing powerfully, in other words, struggling to remain on the socialist path instead of passing to the bourgeois path of restoration. Imperialism, reaction, and revisionism colluded with the aim to do away with the socialist revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat in China a great base of support for the world revolution. With Deng's anti-communist revisionist coup in 1976, China became a large and strategically located potential market for the overseas enterprises of finance capital seeking to gain super profits through the export of capital. 
the exportation of imperialist finance capital as FDI takes greater importance. As Lenin said, commodity production continues to be the basis of the economy in the epoch of imperialism, but such basis is already rotten, since finance capital seeks its realization where it can reach higher rates of profit, namely by overseas investments. As the crisis of imperialism progresses, the struggle for economic territory, markets, and sources of raw materials become sharper, mainly for the semi-colonial countries. As a result, the export of capital is increasing, and FDI has become increasingly important since the mid-1960s, meaning an intensification of the third contradiction, inter-imperialist, and especially the principal contradiction, which is that between the oppressed countries on one hand and the imperialist countries on the other. FDI is done as a package, as we will see when we deal with the case of Taiwan. That is to say, it is the principal form taken by productive capital imported to the oppressed countries, if FDI is seen from the perspective of these countries, which generates a greater deformation of its productive structure since practically the only thing that will grow is that which is related to the needs of the world market. When these needs change, whether for economic or extra-economic reasons, what is left behind are unemployed thousands, ghost towns, abandoned mine shafts, and trash of all kinds, consequences which bear a high social and economic cost, as well as a high cost for the resources of the country, and more need for imperialist capital to commence anew and end in the same way. This is the vicious circle of imperialist domination, the maintenance of third world countries as colonial or semi-colonial and semi-feudal countries wherein bureaucratic capitalism develops. Through this FDI package, the imperialist monopolies increase the import and export of imperialist capital's commodities as inputs for the production of a final product. These inputs represent the total parts required for the production of the final product to occur in the FDI receptor country. Production, which in the majority of cases, consists only of assembly or often only packaging. This is what the bourgeois economists call international fragmentation of production, new international division of labor, etc. Let us examine some very important information regarding the economic development of Southeast Asia and how the development of imperialist investment took place in this part of the world through a study published by the Australian National University in November 2009 and afterwards as the book The Rise of Asia, Trade and Investment in Global Perspective edited by Premachandra Atukarala, Editorial Selection 2010, page 31 onwards. International production fragmentation has become one of the defining characteristics of world trade over the past few decades. The electronics MNEs based in the USA started the process in the late 1960s in response to increasing pressures of domestic real wage increases and rising import competition from low-cost sources. The US government facilitated the process by introducing an external processing tariff, outward processing tariff or OPT, whereby businesses were authorized to export material to be processed overseas and then re-import the final product, paying fees only on the value aggregated overseas, not on the intermediate exported goods. Geography, costs, and history 
all combined to persuade the American MNEs to explore overseas production opportunities in the neighboring countries of Latin America. However, unfavorable investment climate in these countries, macroeconomic instability, political tensions, trade union upheavals and uncertainty, led American producers to switch to sub-suppliers located in East Asia. This is linked to what was seen earlier about the Carta de Punta del Este, and as such also with the rivalry between monopolies and between imperialist countries for the dominance of overseas economic territory to obtain imperialist super profits, as can be seen in the following quotation. The preference of the global electronics production networks for Southeast Asia began in 1968 with the arrival of two U.S. companies, National Semiconductors and Texas Instruments, to set up plants in Singapore to assemble semiconductor devices. By the beginning of the 1970s, Singapore had the lion's share of offshore assembly activities of the U.S. and European semiconductor industries. Virtually every international electronics producer was present in Singapore by the mid-1980s when the hard disk drive HDD assemblers entered the country, further boosting its role as a global assembly center. During the next five years, semiconductor production declined in relative importance and computer peripherals, especially hard disk drives and computers, became the more important part of the island's electronic industry. By the 1980s, Singapore was the world's largest exporter of hard drives, representing almost half of all global production. McKendrick et al., 2000 Yankee electronics monopolies were the first to outsource this assembly to Singapore, but eventually all of the international monopolies of this industry were present there, competing for their share of the pie. Afterwards, these monopolies extended out to the other countries, as can be read below. From 1972, the MNEs with production facilities in Singapore began to relocate some low-end assembly activities to neighboring countries, particularly Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines, in response to the rapid growth of wages and land prices. Many newcomer MNEs to the region also set up production bases in these countries, bypassing Singapore. By the late 1980s, this process had created a new regional division of labor, based on skill differences involved in different stages of the production process and relative wages, and improved communication and transport infrastructure. At the time, there was widespread concern in Singaporean political circles. However, the electronics industry needs a large number of heterogeneous components in its manufacturing in Southeast Asia, also greater economies of scale and more possibilities for specialization for all participating countries. More recently, regional production networks have begun to expand to Vietnam. Despite obvious advantages in terms of location and relative wages, Indonesia has so far failed to benefit from this new form of international specialization due to its unfavorable internal investment climate. 2006 as can be seen, imperialist capital goes to the oppressed countries to conquer markets for its investments and commodities, to dominate the sources of raw materials, and to exploit cheap labor, i.e. to stay ahead of competitors in the struggle for world domination. In this region of the world, the study says, A number of factors underpin the continued attraction of the region as a place for assembly activities. Firstly, despite rapid growth, Manufacturing wages in all ASEAN 
Association of Southeast Asian Nations countries, except Singapore, remain lower or comparable to those in the European periphery countries and Mexico. Secondly, the relative cost advantage factor has been complemented by trade, which is relatively more favorable, investment policy arrangements, and better ports and communication systems to facilitate trade by reducing maintenance costs of service links, which means that everything is subject to FDI. The site selection decisions of multinational companies operating in assembly activities are greatly influenced by the presence of other key players in the market in a given country or neighboring countries. In the context of a long period of successful operation in the region, many of the multinational companies, particularly those based in the United States, have significantly improved the technical activities of their ASEAN regional production networks and have assigned global production responsibilities to subsidiaries located in Singapore and more recently to those found in Malaysia and Thailand. Boris et al. 2000, McKendrick et al. 2000. In general, the experience of the ASEAN region seems to support the view that subsidiaries of multinational companies have a tendency to become increasingly embedded in host countries. The longer the companies are present, the more favorable the global investment climate of the host country becomes. Rangan and Lawrence, 1999, Atukurala and Yamashita, 2006. Over the years, Singapore's role in regional production networks has gradually changed from assembly of low-skill components and testing for the manufacture and design of components and provisioning to serving as the headquarters of production unit services located in neighboring countries. The appeal of Singapore as a regional center for cross-border production networks has continuously improved by the emphasis of government policy on the development of infrastructure, expanding the human capital base, maintaining labor relations in a manner very favorable for international production, and macroeconomic management. McKendrick et al. 2000, Brown and Linden 2005. The quote above expresses that the state is at the service of imperialism and should provide everything to imperialist finance capital. It demonstrates the semi-colonial character of each and every one of these countries. The state must provide all the infrastructure for foreign investment and for the native grand bourgeoisie and the landlords. The state must provide healthcare, education, social services, etc., all in order to ensure that labor power is reproduced at the lowest price possible, along with contractual security and all other types of security. The government must ensure low wages, long hours, and bad working conditions, taking care to increase the international reserves of the country so as to guarantee the investment and return of foreign capital profit, etc. This all relates to the liberalization of production, trade, finance, and labor power. This process does not mean that a reduction in size of the state occurs. Quite the contrary, it means that state sovereignty is extended for some, the imperialist countries, and is reduced for others, the third world countries. Continuing on, the study says, The data helps to understand the growing importance of the trade in parts and components for world trade in machinery and transport equipment, and the central role played by Southeast Asian countries in this trade. World trade in parts and components increased from about 20.9% of total manufacturing exports in 1992 and 93 
to 24.2% in 2004-05. Trade in parts and components accounted for almost one-third of the total increase in world manufacturing exports between these two years. In the development of East Asia, all the countries included in the table have recorded increases in world market shares, with the six Southeast Asian countries growing faster than the regional average. In East Asia, the ASEAN countries, particularly Malaysia, Thailand, the Philippines, and Singapore, stand out for their high dependence on export dynamism and product fragmentation. In 2004-5, component trade made up 58.4% of the total exports from Southeast Asian countries, up from 46.7% in 1992-3. In conclusion, Upon the basis of a semi-colonial and semi-feudal economy in these Southeast Asian countries, the development of bureaucrat capitalism has been fostered by the necessity of imperialism to export commodities and capital, as well as its need for cheap labor and raw materials. We have finished the first section. In the next installment, we'll begin with the section entitled The Countries of Southeast Asia Transformed from Colonies into Semi-Colonies Incompleted Revolution. You can get The Menagerie before the rest of the world at patreon.com slash epicincredulity. And for now, comrades, enjoy your epoch.